The tablets found in Nineveh were strewn across the temple floor, scattered out its doors and into the street. Those in the chambers of the palace were dashed and broken, burnt and scarred. If there had been a physical organization to this library of literature and records, it had been ruined by pillage in the conquest of the city. So it's not by the usual meticulous science of excavation that the epic might have been reassembled. Fortunately, the tablets bear notations, referred to as colophons, at the head and conclusion of the script, that cite the ownership, authorship, titles, and often enumeration in the series. So it is known that the specific order of these tablets of the epic, in order of 1 through 12, is a deliberate edit of the scribes, or scribe, who prepared them. This fact, and evident thematic and linguistic characteristics of the text, assures that this compilation of what are otherwise widespread folktales and ancient lore was intentional, was intellectually conceived to create a literary whole, much as a written novel. Like a novel, the plot advances conscious themes and develops its characters toward a meaningful conclusion. Gilgamesh is changed as a person over its course, first by his encounter with Enkaidu, and then by the death of Enkaidu. His wanderings climax the story of his life meaningfully. His ultimate visit to Utnapishtim is a curious and seemingly intentional conglomeration of several legends. Travel to Mashu, a magic mountain, and through the mountain to the place at the edge of the world where Siduri lives, crossing the Sea of Death to speak to the one man who has never died, obtaining from him something that he must possess, lest he continue his journey in suffering. And in this sojourn, the famous tale of the flood is imparted, made credible and related to the suffering of Gilgamesh as a part of the answer he seeks but also exalting him, the first mortal to have learned it. He shall bring this story back to mankind. What does Gilgamesh seek? Some interpret his quest for immortality. In the context of the Victorian society in which his tale was rediscovered, this interpretation is purely Christian and reactionary. By this interpretation, just as this epic refreshed the veracity of biblical truth concerning the flood and therefore divine creation, this ache for immortality presages triumphant Christian conviction in divine afterlife. But, in the words of Arnold's Dover Beach, the sea of faith was once, too, at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. 
Such interpretation as this is overcast by nostalgia for a fading Christian hegemony to the modern mind, which is the century closed, extinguished, although it yet lies in embers beneath the ashes. Our interpretation should be couched rather in the text itself, in the context of that text's own cultural ideology. What Gilgamesh seeks is not afterlife in the Christian sense, but the continuation of his life. He simply does not want to die. And more specifically, he yearns to be rejuvenated, just as his father Lugobanda lived so long, having been restored to his youthful vigor by the Anzud bird in his own adventure. In the end, Gilgamesh receives from Utnapishtim a fetish, which he himself calls an old man grows into a young man, a plant that should cure him of aging. But poignantly this is lost. The beast of the earth reclaims it and returns it to its original place as a thing not intended for humans, or as a thing which, like youth itself, is impossible to keep. This conclusion thus resounds the message of resignation, which is the profound meaning that Gilgamesh must take from his heroic life. It is finished, he declares, and returns to his home in the city Uruk. All of these motifs and the narrative elements of this epic stand apart in the larger literary tradition, the mythic lore of Sumer and Assyria. We know from the old Sumerian tablets that these appear independently and very anciently. And it is consistent with the convention of oral traditions that underlie this epic to conglomerate motifs and tales in such a manner. What is striking, however, is how beautifully the pieces are brought together. Even the middle of the story, those tablets that tell how he killed Humbaba, how he killed the bull of the heaven, seem integrated in a manner that we think aesthetic or psychologically valid. For the tales reveal him, and the elements of the story are interrelated, linked to, or alluding to portions of text and tale in a linear fashion. The courage of Gilgamesh, who would defy death for fame, for example, is contrasted to the fear and despair that consumes him when he confronts the loss of one whom he loved. His coy rebuff of Ishtar's sexual advances becomes the pretext for the story of the bull of heaven, which in turn becomes the pretext for Enkaidu's death. These are all acts of mindful intention, it may seem to us, as if there were a single author. The lessons or meaning of the epic of Gilgamesh, given that it holds the integrity of a work of literature, is therefore more than simply the anthropological interest it has. This is not just an artifact or some desiccated sacred text uprooted from the sustenance of its meaning. The epic of Gilgamesh must be interpreted as creative literature, as a book of characters, plot, and themes. As such, it is the first in history. We cannot know with certainty that there was a single author, 
Some tablets themselves bear colophons stating it had been inscribed by the hand of King Ashurbanipal himself. Some tablets cite an author or editor by the name of Sinaliki Unini. Because the many tablets of many sources are often word-for-word word identical to others found in other sites, distance also by hundreds of years, the authorship is not a simple attribution. This was sacred and traditional literature. It was changed as little as possible by any who copied or edited it. But the editor of this compilation, whoever put these specific tablets together, selected text, changed words, and gave emphasis toward thematic purpose. That theme is the meaning of death, or perhaps you might say the meaning of life in the midst of death. It is that theme which explains the strange addendum of the twelfth tablet that otherwise seems so out of place. It is that theme that explains the creative renaming of the Babylonian hero of the flood, Atrasis, to Utnapishtim, he who lives long, a transliteration of the original Sumerian name, to focus the intent of the episode. It is that theme which choreographs the action and the personal development of Gilgamesh. The late Victorian and thence customary interpretation of the epic makes much of Gilgamesh's hubris, that Greek concept of overbearing ego or pride, which is the classical tragic flaw of the Greek epic heroes. In the tradition of the classical, not to say also Christian or medieval, interpretation, this has come to infer a moral meaning or symbolic allegory. But I do not see it. I do not see an allegory or a tragedy. Nor do I see the so-called dismal view of life and death that Sanders, Daly, and others say they see in the epic. The perception of a dismal view is, I think, the bias of our customary Christian and Western viewpoint. Taken for what it is, as it is written, the epic's own statement of the Mesopotamian viewpoint, for what we have in this text is a conglomeration of several ancient cultures, is decidedly naturalistic, frank, and pragmatic. Life is hard. Death is final. This is not dismal, except in contrast to the idea that I'm not supposed to die. I'm reminded of the common Western bias against Eastern religious ideas and culture generally, seeing them as hopeless and bleak because they do not share the conception of a personal survival from death, nor of a universe disposed towards providential meaning to the individual person. Indeed, the lifelong lessons to Gilgamesh are quite the opposite. As Siduri instructs him, So Gilgamesh, fill your stomach. Enjoy yourself. Take pleasure every day and every night in every way you can. Play, dance, 
refresh yourself with baths, wash your hair, put on clean clothes, take your child's hand in yours, and take your wife on your lap. That is life. It is a humble and a joyful philosophy. <laughs>